Hi, this is Nathan Johnson. We've been counting down the top 10 most difficult sermons delivered by Eric Ludi. This week at number 7, though originally given in 2010, is a sermon that took Eric four years of spiritual wrestling before he was ready to preach it. Even today, this topic is one most biblical conservatives steer clear of. Yet it's high time the church gained a biblical and sound answer to this important issue of healing. Was healing merely an outward seal upon the ministry of Jesus and his apostles? Or is it something that Jesus intends to be evident today? Buckle your seatbelts and find out as you join Eric in this encore edition of his sermon, Does God Still Heal? This particular message has been one that I have been trying not to give for a very long time. And it might be seemingly harmless to you when we start when you see the title and you understand what it is that we're embarking upon but i don't mind hinting towards this or making it a piece of a message in a more global message but to focus on it is a little uncomfortable for me uh there are certain issues within the church of jesus christ that the strong bible believing tremble at thy word community has gone silent on and has chosen to overlook and surpass or pass over. And this particular message is an appeal to the body of Christ to take on the full counsel of God and to allow the word of God to be our guide even if it leads us into uncomfortable territories. There are certain topics uh, and maybe... With your background in the Church of Jesus Christ, you don't know what those topics are. But there are certain topics that are like a hot potato. And we know that they're there, but we just sort of bounce them around. Pastor to pastor, it's like, okay, I sort of held it for one second, here you go. But we don't necessarily want to deal with it and walk through it. And as a result, this particular theme has been taken hostage by a whole dimension of the church that has not necessarily groomed it, and created an infrastructure of biblical truth to surround it. And as a result, it's almost like a radioactive element within the body of Christ. Many Christians throughout the ages, leaders, oops, men and women that I would highly regard, have said, stay away from this topic. Okay, so I am in deliberate disobedience to some of the great heroes that have said, leave this alone, Eric. Don't touch it. This leads to all sorts of problems within the church. However, I have seen the abuse, and the only way to deal with abuse is to correct it and get back to the word of God on the matter. So here's our message. Uh, Do we have the keynote? Does God still heal? We all know the answer to that. If you're a good, stable Christian, you know the answer to that. Of course. Yes, Jesus still heals. Okay, uh, next message. You see, there's more to it than that, and we all know that. There's all sorts of questions that flow out of this. When Jesus was here on this earth, we know what he did. When the apostles in the book of Acts performed what they did, we know what those things were. They were healings. What do we do with that? Because that isn't what the church is doing today. So we have to somehow deal with the discrepancy between early Christianity and today. And there's all sorts of doctrinal nuance and and gymnastic routines that we have gone through as a conservative church. And the number one 
issue is, well, those things have ceased. Those were demonstrations in those days to prove the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah and the apostles as the apostles. But we do not expect these things today. That's an understatement. We do not expect these things. We know God can heal. If God wants to, he can whip up a good healing anytime he wants. You know, he's God. However, we have no expectation of it. And as a result, you see the church as it is today. It's a church without expectation that God is a healer. I want you to realize I know full well what I'm getting myself into, which is why it's taken me four years to get up and give this message. Four years ago, I remember the moment I was laying in bed. Leslie was next to me, and she was sick with a sinus infection. And Leslie and I were taking a stand maybe more firm than we'd ever taken in our life on some spiritual issues. Every time we have stood up and sort of stuck our head above everyone else and go, you know what? We need to talk on this. Suddenly arrows start going flying at us. The number one statement that comes is, get your head back down, Eric. Dude, anytime you stick your head up like this, you know, it's like sticking your head out of a foxhole. The sniper's just waiting for you. So who's stupid enough to do that? Well, Eric and Leslie have proven stupid enough over the years, and so I don't know why I, wouldn't, I would stop this trend. I might as well remain stupid and continue sticking my head out of the foxhole. But long and short, in this particular situation, Leslie was sick. There was a very common response I would have to Leslie's sickness. Every time we would travel, I don't want to say every time, but I mean, we're talking 95% of the time, when we would travel and do events, Right when we would begin to travel and we'd be on the plane and we'd be arriving, she would get sick. So I was very used to this. And my response was, Lord Jesus, help my wife have endurance and grace and have a good attitude through this time because we resign ourselves to your will. And obviously, since we're walking in truth, if Leslie is sick, we have to assume that this sickness is coming from God. What I just described here is not that unusual. Okay, that's good, classic, be thankful in all things Christianity. In other words, I had a good attitude through it, and I just was exhorting my wife to have a good attitude through it. Doesn't that sound like a great man? Uh, And so here we were, we were laying in bed, and Leslie was sick, and I was, you know, laying next to her, and she made an appeal. And she said, can you pray for me? And it was an interesting moment for me, because God had been bringing something to the surface in me. And that was this simple question. Is what Leslie is dealing with from heaven or from hell? Because if it's from heaven, obviously, I resign myself to it. It's like, God, you do with us whatever you see fit. I'm clay, you're a potter. You do with me as you see fit. However, what if what Leslie is dealing with is from hell? What's my job as a man? It's to hit hell in its teeth. It's to stand and it says, resist the devil and he will flee. We don't know when to resist and when to yield. That's our issue in modern Christianity. We don't want to stand against God. We don't want to presume something against God. So we do nothing. And the enemy steamrolls our life. The church of Jesus Christ in this country is weak. And for those who want to stick their head up and say, how come people are bashing the church of Jesus Christ? It's not a bashing. It's a statement of fact. We are weak, we are powerless, we are impotent. 
Hell is not trembling at the modern church in America. Hell does not fear what we are doing in the church of Jesus Christ today. And I say let's awaken hell. Let's let them know that we mean business on planet earth. We must hit hell in its teeth. And so when we start approaching this issue, you'll notice all hell breaks loose. I'm sitting next to Leslie, and I suddenly awaken. Wait a minute. I need to be fighting for my wife. I need to hit this back. So I did. And Eric has never been the same. Four years ago, something happened in my life. I awakened, even though I wasn't technically asleep. I was in bed, but I was wide awake, but I awakened. I awakened to the fact that the enemy has an agenda to thwart the ongoing and further progressing of the kingdom of heaven. And that he has a counterattack every time we stand up. But we must know how to recognize this attack, and we must know how to press, and to press back with the agenda of God. So we need to know what the agenda of God is. So the next 52 days from this point on, I decided to take a stand on the issue of health. I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity guy, by the way. You want to get me upset? You start talking about health, wealth, and prosperity, that we're all supposed to be millionaires, that we're all supposed to just be uh, without any blemish uh, physically, we'll never have any struggles physically. I want you to know I will refute that today. However, I'm going to refute it in a way that most people aren't expecting. This message is going to take quite a few of you off guard. You're anticipating where I'm going to go, and I'm probably going to go in a completely different direction with it. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is the true gospel. The true gospel that Jesus revealed through his ministry. The true gospel that the apostles continued and the church triumphant throughout the ages has demonstrated. And I say let's get it back because we need something in this day different than what we have. And I, for one, refuse to sit by idly and twiddle my thumbs and just accept it. Because there is a discrepancy between the word of Jesus Christ and what we are experiencing in our daily lives. And that discrepancy needs to be removed, flushed down the toilet. So I stood up and I said no to sickness. Now here's the funny thing. I don't get sick. Or I didn't. I'm, I have one story in my entire past that I, I mean, I, I had the, the cyclical cold. You know, one time of year I'd have a cold for four days. You know, I'd have a little cough and a sniffle. And, you know, that's not that big of a deal. And so it actually felt awkward for me to stand against the issues of sickness. Because, you know, I don't... That's why it's easy for me to tell Leslie, you know, you just need to have a good attitude. I have a good attitude when I have my four-day cold. Uh, You know, it's very easy to look at this from your own perspective. So Eric stands up on the issue of health, an issue that I've had no real attack on except for my wife. I mean, she was dealing with it in in an extreme way. And suddenly, these next 52 days... Remember, I like statistics. That's why, you know, I'll give you data on my life. And I was keeping an account of what was taking place in my life because it was unprecedented. The next 52 days, I had 28 major attacks on my physical health. You want to know why I was awakened to this topic? It wasn't just because of what happened when I was sitting in bed and I said, you know what? I'm going to hit back. My wife should not be made vulnerable to these things I'm going to hit the enemy in the teeth because I believe this is from the enemy. Okay? Well, that's just a harmless thing. 
But someone out there got mad at me. I awakened something. You want to know if there's a spiritual realm? Start just dealing with this issue. It's really bizarre. Why would the enemy care? If I was deluded, he would just leave me alone. Let him go down this path and, you know, think these thoughts. Stand for health. I start standing for it, and suddenly, 28 times in 52 days, I had major attacks on my health. You know what I did every single time? I told the students this this semester. I said, no. It was that simple. No. I knew the position that I had in the blood of Jesus. It was that simple. And guess what? 52 days, 28 major things coming against my health, and not one thing stuck. Every single thing bounced off. I felt the effects of it, and then it left. I literally watched it in 52 days. Something supernatural was demonstrated to me. Still didn't know what to do with it. I spent all that time and the next four years, I've been dealing with this issue biblically. And I told God even back then, the last thing I want to do is ever address this to the body of Christ. I even told Leslie that night when I awakened, when I was laying in that bed, sitting in that bed, I said, my biggest struggle is I feel like just by standing up and exerting myself in this area, I'm one of those wackos. I do not want to be Benny Hinn. I do not want to be Todd Bentley. I know men who have stood up against sickness, and to be honest, I do not want to be them. They are lacking in Christian character. They are lacking in the substance of a holy life. I have no interest in touching an area that blemishes a man. Leave it be. Let us be sick. I don't want to touch that type of living. I do not want to be a, a circus performer. Let the body of Christ be sick. It doesn't bother me if we can bring glory to Jesus Christ. I've seen plenty of men and women who suffered physically and brought glory to Jesus Christ through their attitudes. I'm fine with that. Let's just keep the status quo in this area. I don't want to touch it. God keeps pushing me. You'll notice... If you hang around me, my interest isn't defending my position. It's defending the word of God. And as a result, my position gets challenged by the word of God. It's a very uncomfortable way to approach the word of God. Instead of approaching it saying, okay, God, justify what I believe. It's God, show me what is true. And as a result, when I'm so used to approaching health and these things a certain way and giving thanks to God in all things and saying, okay, if I'm sick, great. It doesn't matter. I want you to know you'll never find such a battle in your life than to stand up against a little cold. It's hard. You will have everything in you that just wants to subside into silence and let yourself have a cold. It's not that big of a deal. You know what I started doing? You know that little yellow that you get in your nose? Yellow is a, it's a whole term to Leslie and I. If we see yellow in our life in any regard, we say, no. I want you to know that's one of the hardest things you could ever do which is one of the demonstrations of the significance of the battle. It is easier to subside, to be silent, and just let something hit you than it is to stand up. And that's the same with that big meanie who comes to your door and says, hey, I want to come in and hurt someone. It's a lot easier to just say, yes, come on in and abuse us as a family than it is to rise up and fight. Why that is, I'm not sure. But when the enemy comes in, it is easy to just go silent. It is easy to drop your sword and just say, take us, take us, please. It's time to fight. We just need to know how to fight and what to fight. So what this message is, 
I'm not going, there's so many nuances that flow out of this. And this is the, one of the reasons I also don't want to touch this is because it, there's a stream of a thousand other thoughts that come. Another stream of questions that flow out of it. What am I supposed to do for my individual situation, which is this? Am I supposed to stand against it? Am I supposed to resist it? Am I supposed to just yield to it and accept it? Oh, should we open Pandora's box here? Well, obviously, the answer for me is, God seems to be saying, yes. As I walk through this, I'm going to basically be giving a statement scripturally of what the Bible says about this question. Does God still heal? I'm going to make a case. We are going to establish the nature of God. Because one of the things that is established in scripture is the nature of God. The word of God made flesh was Jesus Christ. He was the full expression of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Which means if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. You've beheld his nature. So what is God's nature? If you understand God's nature, and you understand that God's nature cannot alter, then you can begin to build a framework and a template for how to interact with this God and what to expect from this God. First of all, I'm going to establish the fact that our God is a God of mercy, which you know, but I want you to meditate upon how this affects this topic. In Luke 9, now you'll see that I emphasize certain things in here. It's because I want them to stand out and I want you just to ponder them. And the apostles, when they were returned, they had been going out and healing people uh, and and preaching the coming of the kingdom. Told him, told Jesus, all that they had done He, meaning Jesus, took them and went aside privately. Okay, it's like, you know, here, guys, let's let's come aside privately. Let's get away from the mobs. We're around mobs all the time. Let's, Let's come away privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, they knew that they had snuck away privately. When the people knew it, they followed him. And he, look at this, received them. Okay, I'm just building a case here. He's going aside privately with his apostles. You know, privately means private. But when the mob hears about it, they come and they follow. And what does he do? Shoo them? He receives them. You're going to see this same pattern over and over and over again throughout Scripture. You pursue Jesus. You follow Jesus. He doesn't turn you away. And spoke unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. Now, this isn't my great case for you. You, know, you say, well, I already know that. I'm just saying this is, I'm demonstrating a nature here. He heals them that have need of healing. When the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in the desert place. They're in a desert place. There's a lot of men and women here. I think this was around 5,000 men alone. He healed all that had need of healing. He received them, even though he was trying to sneak away privately, he received them and preached to them the kingdom of God. But he said unto the disciples, give ye them to eat. And they said, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. Now you probably know the rest of the story. Jesus takes a few fishes and loaves and he multiplies them and feeds them. What is the nature of our God that is being revealed? You pursue him, 
Even when it seems like he's trying to get away, he receives you. He preaches to you the kingdom. He heals all your sicknesses. And then you're hungry. You've come out to meet him in a desert place. Feed them. He takes care of all of our needs. It's an incredible God that we serve. The nature of our God has been marred. And we have accused him, even if it's under our breath, of things that the enemy has wrought in our life. The enemy has come in, found a breach in the wall, stuck a a grenade, pulled the uh, the pin, stuck a grenade inside the walls of 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 our life, snuck outside the wall. This disaster has taken place inside of our life. The first voice we hear is the enemy. And he says, can you believe God did that to you? Meanwhile, the nature of our God is being blasphemed. Where is the truth of Jesus Christ in our age? Who is going to stand up and defend the nature of our God? John 10.10 says it very simply. I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. Is that the perception you have of your God? Or is your God come to steal, kill, and destroy? Which God is it that you serve? Because the word of God clarifies who's who. There's two kingdoms at war. The enemy kingdom, ruled by Lucifer, Satan, the devil. And it says of him that he is a liar and a cheat and a deceiver. And that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come, says God, that they might have life. And then they might have it more abundantly. That is a fact of God's nature. How will we recognize the Messiah? So let's go back into the Old Testament. Now, this could be such a grand, all day long, maybe all week long study. So I'm going to try and go through this as quickly as I can. But it is a doozy of a study. How will we recognize the Messiah? Well, let's look at Isaiah. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Your God is coming. Fear not. Your God is coming, and when he comes, he will save you. Well, if he's saving you, what does the saving look like? It is enunciated here. The coming Messiah, when God comes to this earth, what will it look like? That's a key question. Does he come and pat us on the back and say, could you just pray this one prayer? Yes, your life is still a living hell, but I just want to get to you to pray this one prayer so I can get you into heaven. What does the rescue work of the God of the universe look like? Luke 4. And there was delivered unto him, speaking of Jesus, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus closes the book. He reads this little bit from the book of Isaiah. Closes the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them. This is an audacious statement. 
This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Your Messiah has come. What's this Messiah to do? He's going to set them at liberty. He's going to heal. He is going to break chains of bondage. Our Jesus did not come to pat us on the back and to cheer us on to the finish line. He came to pick us up and carry us the entire way. There's a big difference between the two. Our gospel has been baked down to be so little. It's like a little shrinky dink. It's like, it seems to shrink with time. And over time, from the beginning now to the end, it's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Where now Jesus is like this word from a distance saying, I love you. I love you. It's like echoing. I, I sense a love from my father. He loves me. He says, just believe. And we believe and we say, I know you died 2,000 years ago. And I know I now have a hope of eternal life. Meanwhile, the tired tread of the enemy is over our life. We have one of those marks of just like a tire over our life. And that's the testimony of the church. In one big heap, there we are with the enemy trouncing upon us. Rise up. Let's live. Let's conquer for Jesus Christ. The agenda of Christ. I'm going to break this down into two key things. This is based out of what we just read in Luke. He will bring the kingdom of light and rescue those bound in darkness. This is what the Messiah will do. And number two, he will wholly dismantle the kingdom of darkness, the effects of sin. God created this world, this earth, good. His creation was good. It was right. It was the way it ought to be. But then something known as the rebellion of man came in. The principle of sin entered in. The effects of this sin are so, so extreme, and they wear down our world. They wear down the individual. They affect his spirit, his soul, and his body. The effects of sin are grand. And so what I'm actually proposing here, which can get me in trouble, is that he will wholly dismantle the kingdom of darkness, the effects of sin. Go tell John. Remember John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist has pronounced that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And there's John in prison. As he's watching this ministry of Jesus, it's not necessarily the way he envisioned it to be. And so he, well, I'll just read it. And John, calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Aren't thou he that should come? Or look we for another. When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Aren't thou he that should come? Or look we for another. And in that same hour, this is not an accident, in that same hour, Jesus cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The Messiah has come. This is the testimony to John. Is it the testimony to us? There is no demonstration of this in our generation. None. So the question is, does God still heal? This was obviously the testimony to an entire generation of Israelites who, guess what, missed it. We're like, oh, that helped establish the fact that he was the Messiah. Yeah, and they didn't hear it. 
and they crucified him. This isn't something that increased his popularity rating. This drove him into the dirt, if anything. It caused all the ruling officials to say, get this guy off the planet. You want to get off the planet and quick? You start demonstrating the power of the kingdom. Pretty soon, crosses will be erected in our honor. This is dangerous stuff that we're uncorking today. I know it sounds all nice. That's because the church has taken it hostage into one little band over here. And we celebrate healing and we lose the holiness of God. You cannot take healing outside the framework of Scripture and expect it to breed the glory of Jesus Christ on earth. We need both and. My appeal to the church is that those that tremble before the word would once again take back the entirety of the word of God and say, let's bring healing inside the context of scripture as opposed to these vagabond circus acts that are running around the globe doing this work in front of cameras and for photo ops. This is ridiculous. What are the effects of sin? Sin has entered this world, and we'll see three different dimensions of who we are. The spirit, the spirit is like an organ within us. In the, holy, in the temple of God, there's three dimensions, just like this. You have the outer court, you have the inner court, you have the holy of holies. The outer court is very similar to the body. It's what the Gentiles can interact with. The inner court, the soul, is where the consecrated priests are allowed into, and the holy of holies. That's God's very presence dwells there. The spirit is dead, as it says in the New Testament. In other words, there is an organ within you, a part of your being, as a man and a woman, that was intended to be living, but is dead. And this spirit is literally the eyesight of your spiritual man to be able to see things of heaven. It is your ears to be able to hear the voice of God, to be able to discern what Scripture is even saying. Without your spirit, you have no discernment, no understanding, and no comprehension of the things of another realm. You can't see it. If you've ever talked to someone that has a dead spirit, and you start telling them what you believe as a Christian, they look at you with a wry grin, like, oh, you're one of those wackos. But when God takes care of your life, and he rescues you and he saves you, the first thing he does is he brings your spirit to life. And it may be dull in its senses still. It's, it's like uh, cloudy in its vision. It's dull in its hearing. But it's starting to discern something. I know God's there. I'm not exactly sure why I know God's there, but I know he's there. Whereas before, you used to mock the notion. And now you're seeing it. You're hearing it. You're feeling it at a very basic level. That's the spirit of God within us. And our spirit lies dead, wrapped in grave cloths. Our soul which is our mind, will, and emotions. It lies impotent, defeated, abused, confused, depressed, fearful, and brokenhearted. We could add a whole bunch of things to that list. And our body lies sick, lame, deaf, blind, diseased, palsied, and maimed. We are under siege with sin and the effects of sin. I'm right there with you in saying, you know what? Why don't we allow God to deal with the spirit and the soul? It really doesn't matter about the body if we're saved in the spirit and the soul. And I'm right there with you. At a certain level. It's like, you know what? If we could just avoid this topic, we could still be very healthy as a church. I mean, who cares if we're deaf and blind and we have a cough every now and then? It's not that big of a deal. Is it? What matters to me is the purchase of the cross. Either Christ purchased something for us or he didn't. If he didn't, let's leave the issue. 
Let's just walk away from it. It's great that Jesus healed. It's great that the apostles healed. But let's not stress about that. And if he wants to heal us, great. But what if it's part of the cross? What if what Jesus did was for that? To evidence in this natural realm that the effects of sin have been dealt with in totality. What if is my question today? The power of the promise one. So we just talked about the power of sin. What we saw were the effects of the power of sin. Now let's talk about the effects of the power of the promised one. So let's go up to the top. We see the two things that I talked about before. That this promised one, this Messiah, will bring the kingdom of light and rescue those bound in darkness. And he will wholly dismantle the kingdom of darkness, the effects of sin. Well, what are the effects of sin? And when they are reversed, what would it look like? Well, you're going to notice that this is very similar to the New Testament. It is the New Testament. The spirit of man, number one, will once again live and house the spirit of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Number two, the soul of man will be set free from the power and control of sin to live unto the glory of King Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We no longer need to allow sin to reign in this mortal body. Why? Because the effects of sin, the controlling power of sin, has been dealt with on the cross. Now we're fairly far removed from that in the modern church, so I may have stepped on a toe just saying that. However, I will gladly say that without any reticence. This next one is where I start to get all mealy-mouthed. However, if you get me in my private life, you'll hear exactly what I feel on it. It's just when God presses me to the pulpit to say it, I get a little red-faced. Dear Lord Jesus, take care of a red face in Eric Ludi. The body of man will be made whole in order to carry on the mission of Jesus in this earth. Made strong in order that it may be gloriously spent in battle. I am not interested in just being made whole so that I can live on some island being fanned and being fed grapes. Christianity is not about my comfort. I need to be made strong for a reason so that I can be spent so that I could be spent well. You know that Jesus was the spotless lamb of sacrifice? Do you know that you could not offer a Passover lamb that was lame? That was blemished? You know that Jesus was made whole? Why? So that he could be sacrificed. Jesus builds his saints and he makes us strong so that we can be spilled out for his glory and not for the glory of the power of sin. We are set free from the power of sin and the effects of sin so that we can follow through with the rewards of obedience. When you're laying in bed hacking, you cannot follow. You cannot give the message. We must be made strong to be spent. Matthew 4, 23 through 24. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse disease and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Now, is this just a random scripture that I'm sort of scraping together going, you know, Jesus had his moments where suddenly he just seemed moved by compassion. We know that God can heal. And so, is this a normative behavior in God's person? 
Or is this an abnormal? Is this an aberration? And we just happen to find one scripture. It's like, oh, he did it. Well, that gives us hope that he could do it again. So the question is, does God do it as a means of his nature, as an extension of his nature? Matthew 6.10 says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus' prescribed prayer. You want to know how to pray? You want to pray in concordance with what God is praying? He wants what is established and what is real in heaven to be real down here. So I just want, my, my simple question would be, do you see the maimed, the lame, the blind, the dumb, and the deaf strolling about and staggering through heaven? If not, then I want you to just ponder this. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know that God can get glory out of our good attitude when we are sick. I have no doubt about that. God will take our limited understanding on this point and he will leverage it to the fullest extent. I am saying if there is a crumb from the cross that is going unappreciated, that we take it. If God intends us to fight something the enemy is doing, then let's draw our sword. The seemingly ambiguous will of God. God, if it's thy will, we ask that you would heal. We've all prayed that prayer. In fact, we, don't, we feel uncomfortable not praying that prayer. I mean, to presume upon God and to say it is his will, my proposal isn't that you just pray everyone that is sick right now on planet Earth be healed. Here's Jesus only said what his father was speaking, and he only did what his father was doing. As I've always said, he walked by that lame man at the gate beautiful all throughout his life and didn't heal him. That means that Jesus didn't heal everyone, but it's interesting. Everyone that came unto him, he did. So when you say, is it God's will that all would, God's will that all would be healed? All I know is that I can appropriate it this way. God heals. And God delights to heal. And God will heal. But just as Jesus only did that which his father was doing, only spoke that which his father was speaking, he only healed that who his father was, that those who his father was healing. And same with us. We walk with the swagger of the freshly anointed, knowing that our God is able and willing and desirous. So when we come into those situations and we see someone that has need and they're within our range and they're right in front of us, Just like if we see a lost person and God has brought them into our life. Let's fight for their soul. Let's fight for their strength and their healing. Why? So that God could do a deeper work within them. Healing the body doesn't save you from hell. But it is a passageway. The effects of sin that are blocking the access unto a full givenness to Jesus Christ is completely removed. So the seemingly ambiguous will of God. Is it ambiguous? Luke 5, and it came to pass when he was in a certain city, speaking of Jesus, behold, a man full of leprosy who seen Jesus fell on his face and besought him saying, Lord, if thou will, thou can make me clean. And he put forth his hand, speaking of Jesus, and touched the man with leprosy. What does he say? Saying, I will. What a statement. Be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. I want you to know, in Scripture, there is no substantiation. I want you to challenge me on this. None that would substantiate that God is unwilling to heal. The closest thing to it is a Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and asks for healing for her daughter who is uh, demon-possessed. 
And he's quiet and doesn't even respond. And she presses her plea. And he says, lady, I didn't come for you. I only came for the lost sheep of Israel. And she pleads and says, well, even the, the, the dogs are able to eat from what falls from the children's table. And he heals her daughter. And he says, great is thy faith. That was a testing of faith. If God is silent on this point, it's not because he doesn't desire. It's because he's proving the substance of faith. Will you follow through? Do you know my nature? Do you know what my intent is? Do you know what the kingdom of heaven looks like? Do you know what I'm trying to accomplish on this earth? Press it. Ask for it. Go after it. Okay, this is going to be a hard one for those of you that are arguing to argue. It's actually his name. Jehovah Rapha. It's the name of God. Well, I haven't told you what the name means. You just heard it. Jehovah Rapha. God the physician, the one who mends, repairs, sews up, and makes whole. There are certain aspects of the word of God that we know have a time and a place throughout history. And then they cease. And they're no longer needed. We needed a high priest of Aaron's descent. But no more do we need a high priest of Aaron's descent. The Aaronic line of priesthood has ceased Because the true high priest has come. There are things in the Old Testament that cease. There are things in the New Testament that God literally says, these will be not needed when the perfect comes. But his nature does not cease. Exodus 15, 26. And he, Moses, cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which he had cast into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. For I am Jehovah Rapha, the God that mends, the God that makes whole, the God that takes the effects of sin and reverses it. I am the God that perfects the children of God. If you stay in alignment with me, if you abide in me, then this world's effects of sin cannot encroach upon you. You will be made strong to be spent, just as Jesus was, just as the apostles were, just as all the great men and women throughout Christian history were. The unchanging God, Jehovah Rapha. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. Speaking of covenant, this is what David's speaking of in Psalm 103. The benefits of covenant. Let's forget not these benefits. Who forgives all thine iniquities and who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. Well, you see, what we see has happened is that God has ceased to heal. Okay, if he ceased to heal, has he also ceased to forgive our iniquities? Has he also ceased to redeem our lives from destruction? Has he ceased from crowning us with loving kindness and tender mercies? At what point do we just decide to pick out what we want? I know this is an uncomfortable issue. It isn't ours to choose. This is his nature. 
And we stand in defense of his nature. Even if it reproves us. Even if it makes us feel a little awkward. We don't know what to do with it. Because we might look like the next Benny Hinn. I am not a fan of Benny Hinn. And I will go on record publicly of saying it. I already have, by the way. And I got a lot of uh, flack for it. I am not a respecter of circus acts. I am not a respecter of a man who tries to demonstrate the power for his own glory. I am interested in humble men and women who have no interest in making a spectacle of themselves. They only have interest in seeing Jesus Christ demonstrated on planet Earth. So if there are spectacles out there, if there are circus acts out there, dear Lord Jesus, cleanse the church of them so that we can once again be a humble bride who brings people to Jesus and not to us. We are not the solution for a dying and diseased age. He is. Our job is to lead people to the healer. We carry them in on cots and we set them before Jesus. We say, I can't help them, but I know you can. And I know you delight to do it. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in this body as it is in heaven. Please, Lord, you asked me to pray it, so I stand in full assurance that that is your design. It's his name. Jehovah Rapha, the physician, the great physician, the one who mends and makes whole. I want you to know, never throughout all of scripture has one of his names ceased. Because a name is a nature. When he gives himself a name and he reveals his name to Israel, he remains that for all of eternity. He is not the God who created, and then suddenly he's not in the New Testament. Oh yeah, he ceased from being the God who created. He doesn't cease from being the God of battle. He doesn't cease from being the God, the provider. He doesn't cease from being the I am. It's his name. It's his person. He is love. He doesn't cease from being love. It's like, you know, I've passed that time. That was for a previous dispensation. Now, I'm no longer love. He doesn't alter. He's Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. I am the Lord. I change not. God, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He is Jehovah Rapha, whether we feel comfortable with him being that or not. I say, we start feeling comfortable with who our God is. And we allow him to be exactly who he says he is, instead of trying to marginalize it or stick it in some weird category or basement room to say, okay, well, I believe it, but I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm right there with you. I don't really want to talk about it either. However, here I am. And my God is Jehovah Rapha. He ever remains, dot, 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 my portion, my maker, my husband, my well-beloved, my savior, my hope, my brother, my helper, my refiner, my purifier. See if any of these have ceased. My purifier, my Lord, master, my servant, my example, my teacher, my shepherd, my keeper, my feeder, my leader, my restorer, my resting place, my meat, my drink, my Passover, my peace, my wisdom. Are these things going away? He is these things, and he always will remain these things unto his beloved. My righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. Uh-oh. My physician, my healer. My all in all. Is he your physician? Or is the guy down the street named Joe? Who is it? Who's your physician? It says of Asa that he turned not unto the Lord, but unto the physicians. And he died. I'm not against physicians, by the way. God can use a physician if he wants. 
Who are you turning to first? Who is your physician? When you're filling out uh, your insurance forms, could you imagine how awkward that would be? Uh, your family doctor, Yehovah uh, <clears throat> Rapha. He's a Jewish guy. Uh, my physician, my healer. My question to you is, who do you turn to first? You don't turn to him second. You turn to him first. If he wants to lead you to a physician, that's his business. Because he's the one directing your life. But he must be the church's physician once again. The unceasing nature. Okay, this is Eric attempting to explain something that, you know, isn't that easy to articulate. So let's see how well I can do here. Attributes of God's nature never cease. The purposes of his will never cease. They are enduring, unchanging aspects of God's person. However, things of shadow, symbol, tool, and device that have been utilized by God throughout history in order to reveal his attributes and his purposes may cease. So what I just confessed is that I believe in cessationism. And that is cessationism of certain things throughout the Old Testament and the New. Do you know there's certain things in the Old Testament that I do not believe are active today in the Christian life or not meant to be? And I believe that there are certain things in the New Testament life that will cease. Now, the big debate could be when. Okay, and I'm not going to cover that today, even though that would probably be juicy information for some of you. Look at this. I'm giving examples. Circumcision of the human body. You know that if you're practicing circumcision of the human body to gain right salvific relationship with God, you are Old Testament. You know, God asks us to circumcise our hearts, which means to remove the flesh from our life. It's a different form of circumcision. That was a foreshadow of what we have. We, that ceased. You follow me? So I just said that something ceased in the Old Testament. Whoa, isn't God eternal? Doesn't he not change? His will, his purposes, his nature do not change. But how he reveals himself can. Sacrifice of bulls, goats, and lambs. I don't know how many of you are practicing that still today. It ceased. Why? Because we, Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf. A temple built by human hands. Do you not know that now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge actually says in 1 Corinthians, it says that these will cease. I'm not saying that they've already ceased. I'm saying they will cease, which means they have a season and they are not the purchase of the cross. What? They're not his nature. God has not revealed himself as the God of tongues, as the God of a word of knowledge. That isn't his defining attribute. But he is a God who heals. And never in the Bible does it say that healing will cease. However, we will be made whole. The use of the sun and moon for light. In Revelation, there's no more use for the sun and moon. Isn't that an interesting statement? Our use of them and our need for them will no longer be needed, at least within the city of God. Isn't that a fascinating statement? There are things that cease. God created them. They're perfectly good and fine. There is no problem with them. They're not bad. There was nothing wrong with circumcision of the human body in the Old Testament. However, there was a progression. But these things are types and shadows. They are not the nature of our God. The fact that God is a healer is revealed in Scripture as a part of his nature and a definite purpose of his will. Therefore, it does not cease as do other elements of shadow and symbol. Introducing the healer. I love this statement in Matthew 8. 
And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Oh, what a statement. Okay, this is just a quick introduction. And he healed them. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And he healed all that were sick. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spoke and saw. And he healed their sick. Lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And he healed many, for he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many had plagues. And he and she was healed of that plague. And he healed them. And he healed them. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And they were healed. Virtue flowed out of them. And he healed them all. He that was possessed of the devils was healed. She was healed immediately. He healed them that had need of healing. Jesus healed the child and delivered him again to his father. He took him and healed him and let him go. He touched his ear and healed him. Jesus healed I think that goes without saying, that goes without question. But this is interesting. It wasn't just Jesus. To prove his Messiahship, to demonstrate the authority of God on earth. But the 12, his disciples, suddenly are endued with this power to carry it forth. Then he called his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What an interesting agenda for Jesus. Is it possible that the same agenda that you see in Jesus, which was the exact same thing, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick, which is basically to show the power of God to reverse the effects of the sin in this world. Is it possible that when he's handing it to the disciples that this could also be something that we are being entrusted with? I know that's a little scary to ponder, but just ponder it. Okay, so if we say, well, it was just Jesus and his disciples who then became the apostles, and that was how God sealed them, which is they're the ones that wrote the canon, and God had to show that he had given them divine authority, and so therefore that's where it stops. Wait a minute. Who are these guys then? Seventy more commanded to heal. Not just given the authority to be able to heal, they are commanded to heal. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come and into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. The kingdom of God and the healing of the sick. I know it makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. It would be easier if we just left this off to the side, but... I'm making a point here. Does God still heal? Does God expect us to expect him to heal? Now the apostles continue the work. So Jesus is now gone. The Messiahship has been established. Now the apostles continue in the book of Acts. The lame man was healed. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And they were healed, every one. And many taken with palsies that were lame were healed. Paul said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he, the lame man, leaped and walked. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. Others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed. The case for perpetuity, which means continuation. Does this continue? 
The apostles were given. Now, we also see that Philip healed. We have other cases in the Bible of people outside the apostles after Jesus that healed. The case for perpetuity, is there one? If there isn't, I'm fine with leaving healing in the first century. I'm fine with it. I'm not fine with the fact that all throughout Christian history, there has been shown a case for perpetuity. That this is progressing. There's no statement in the Bible that says it's not God's will to heal. Not one. There is no statement in the Bible that says this ceases. Not one. So where do we get our doctrine from? I'll tell you from our experience. We are basing our doctrine not on the word of God, but by our personal experience, which testifies that Jesus obviously doesn't want to heal today. Is that what is our lead instrument in discerning what is true and what is not? Here's the lead instrument for a Christian. It's what the Bible says. God speaks and it is fact and it is authoritative. What God says, I don't care if it defies our experience. We follow it. Our experience can only be corrected when we follow God instead of it. And when we do follow fact, our experience lines up. It might take a season of battle and fighting through, but it will. Evidences of the continuation. Origin, which you'll see the dates as we go down. So he's around 200 to 230 AD when he would have said this. Declares that men had marvelous power of curing by invoking the divine name. They expel evil spirits and perform many cures according to the will of the Logos, which is the word of God. It's the word used in John 1. So obviously in 200 to 230, one of our church fathers is literally testifying that men of God in that age had power to heal sicknesses. So did this cease? This is confusing. Because the canon was already finalized by then. So what's going on here? St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, gives testimony of the healing power. St. Macarius of Alexandria gives testimony of both lameness and paralysis healed in the name of Jesus. St. Augustine testifies to signs and wonders done by those martyred. Beth Wiegand testified to being cured of paralysis. St. John of Beverly testified to the healing power. St. Bernard, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Thomas of Hereford, St. Catherine of Siena, Martin Luther, St. Francis of Xavier, St. Philip of Neri, Pascal's niece, George Fox, and John Wesley, just to give a sampling, all testify of witnessing the healing power of God in their generation. There seems to be some sort of perpetuity. What we don't know is are these random cases or is this a normative behavior of the church. Good question. That's the one we're wrestling with. We know that God can heal. Does God intend to heal? Now you'll notice I stopped in 1791, right before we get to the 1800s. Something has begun to happen right in the 1800s and we see the emergence of a Pentecostal movement, a resurgence of emphasis in these areas. Most of us run the opposite way when we start hearing words like that, which is why I stopped. Because I don't want that to be the stumbling block for us. I want to say, all throughout history, we have seen the evidence of healing. In the past 200 years, there are literally documented, probably close to 500,000 to a million, documented healings. Where they're literally documented with multiple witnesses. There's tons of healings without that. I'm just saying that in the past 200 years, the church of Jesus Christ has said, look. Those that have stood and said, I know my God still heals, have seen it. One man, a hundred thousand in his lifetime, documented, not just every one of them, documented that he saw them healed. What is that? What do we do with that? Is that the work of Beelzebub? 
That's a good question. Is this God or is this a counterfeit? All throughout scripture, we see the testimony of it being God. Now is the enemy working miracles? Is the enemy healing the sick? Is the enemy reversing the effects of sin? That's a good question. Richard Holt Hutton. But whatever miracles be, history shows a great amount of evidence that such events have happened in all ages. Enthusiasm and fraud cannot be asked to account for as much evidence on this subject as exists. What should we expect? In Mark 16, it says, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, they sat eating, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So the context here, this is the very last few lines of Mark, the book of Mark. Jesus is upbraiding them because of something known as unbelief. And he says, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is a command. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So who's it talking about? It's not talking about the apostles. It's talking about who they're preaching the gospel to. Okay, you following me on that? In other words, it's not talking about the apostles here. It's commanding the apostles to go into the earth and to preach the gospel. And those that believe what the apostles speak and are baptized shall be saved. But he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Who are those? Are those the apostles? No, contextually it's speaking about those who the apostles speak to and who believe. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Challenge me on this grammatically. That's what it's saying. The believers are the ones that don't yet believe. And those that believe shall be saved. And these are the signs that shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues, and they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. The book of Mark, done. Is any sick among you? It says in the book of James. Uh, Yeah, I think we have some sick in here. Is any sick among us? Let him call uh, call for the elders of the church and let let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What do we do with that? Well, I've talked with many pastors about this. I have this one pastor in my life that says, well, what it says is uh, that the prayer of faith may heal the sick. Is Is that what it says? It says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Shall, not may, shall. That's not our experience, is it? So what do we do with this? Do we believe our experience or do we believe the word of God? Because in the book of James, James doesn't stutter. He just says that if it's totally normal and he's not talking to the apostles. He is one of the apostles speaking to the church. What do we do with this stuff? It's not just in his nature. It's wrapped in the work of the cross. Now here's 
don't trust me yet. I'm going to make a case for this. I'm going to read Matthew 8, 1 through 17. The very last line is very important. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, speaking of Jesus. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou, tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. That little last line is, that's not the last line, but that last line on that screen is a very important one. And as thou hast believed, how are you believing in this area? So be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and, a, and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Okay, that's four distinct stories in one flow. It's like God, for whatever reason, seems to want to tell us that Jesus healed. Oh, and he healed. And he healed again. And he healed again. Listen to this line. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We all know that line. It's Isaiah 53. It's the classic Messiah scripture. That's the classic atonement scripture. It's the classic picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. We have in context, in the New Testament, the testimony, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four distinct healings. And in that context, he says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he carried our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. This is a testimony of what the cross did. Isaiah 53 He is despised and rejected of men. Who are we speaking of? Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. This is the exact scripture that it is referring to. It says, surely he hath borne our griefs. What is grief? That is kole. Which means sickness, disease, and grief. In the New Testament, we have a direct link with this being physical sickness. This means that the cross of Jesus Christ dealt with physical sickness and carried our sorrows. What is the word sorrow? It's makov, which means sorrow, both physical and mental pain. What we have is we have an argument that says 
By his stripes we are healed. Well, the word healing is not just talking about physical healing. In fact, there's no evidence that it's talking about physical healing. It's talking about emotional healing. Jesus came and he healed us emotionally and repaired us emotionally. I agree. But I want you to know the context for by his stripes we are healed is not what you just heard. It is actually physical. It says, first of all, carried our sorrows. He carried our physical and mental pain. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, this is from 1 Peter, this is the exact thing that is constantly referred to, saying healed in this context is talking about emotional healing. The context as revealed in the book of Matthew is it's revealing the one who bore our sicknesses upon the cross. And it says with his stripes, which is kabura. His bruises, his wounds, the blows received. We are healed. What is the word for healing? Rapha. The Lord, our healer, Jehovah Rapha. This is his nature. It means to heal, to physically mend, to repair, sew up, and make whole. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. What is this? That's the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm making an appeal that healing is not just the nature of God. It's not just the will of God. It's in the atonement, which means when Jesus went to that cross, it was part of the package. When we leave it out, We are discriminating against the cross based on our own preference, not based on the revelation of the word. We take the full package, whether we like it or not. Jesus Christ died with healing in mind for the physical body. (laughs) Reckoning the full atoning work of Christ. We talk about reckoning. We, We have a message called reckoning with truth. And we talk about the book of uh, Romans, in Romans 6, where it says that when Christ died, we died. And we were baptized in his baptism. Unto death, we are dead to sin. Our old man has been crucified. And what it says in Romans 6 is reckon it. In other words, someone could be dangling keys in front of you and you have shackles on your wrist. And if someone said to you, has Jesus offered you the keys? You say, yes, I believe he's offered me the keys. But if you don't take the keys... And stick them into the lock and turn it. Guess what? Those keys are of no value to you. Belief is more than acknowledging something is historical fact. It is taking it, reckoning it, turning the key in the lock and seeing something change in the natural realm. This is a challenge and I'm not expecting you to do it today. I want you to start wrestling with this. It's taken me four years to get up here. I have taken keys And I have stuck them into locks and I have seen extraordinary things happen over the last four years. If you asked me, have I seen the book of Acts opened up? I'd say not even close. But I refuse to stop until I do. And here's the funny thing. I don't even care about signs and wonders. I'd be perfectly happy as a Christian without one sign or one wonder. Give me the word of God, I'm fine. I'm a true conservative. I am not attracted to this stuff. I don't want things like tongues and words of knowledge and healings in the scripture. God, could you strategically remove them? 
I like sanity in my gospel. I don't want this stuff after the natural. But there's another part of me that could care less about the natural Eric. And I'm saying, Jesus, whatever your agenda is, I submit to it. And if this is what it is, and everyone on planet Earth begins to turn on me, I have a whole conservative constituency, people that love me because they trust that I'm going to bring the word of God. Well, I'm stomping on toes with this message. There are people that are dead set in their position. And I'm like squashing a big toe with this. I can't help it. Reckoning the full atoning work of Jesus Christ. Just as we say, I take it as fact that when Christ died, I died in him. We say, I take it as fact that when Jesus Christ died, he bore my sickness. That's quite a statement. I want you to realize there's a key, and when you grab it and you take it, that's serious business in the heavenly realms. It's either a part of that cross or it's not. If it's not, we lay it down on the counter and we walk away. If it is, we have to reckon with it. We have to wrestle with this fact. Is it there or not? This is from Confusion 316. He himself took our inability to levitate and bore our futility at transforming flowers into flower pots. By his stripes, we sing an octave higher. What I'm saying in this is that what Jesus Christ has done is... Second time I've done that. Is very specific. In other words, he said, you have diseases, you have griefs, you have sorrows, you have physical and mental pain. You have the effects of sin upon you. I want you to know that I'm going to become sin for you. He became sin for us. All the effects of it were poured out on him. Do we believe it? That's the key. Because I recognize that our generation of Christianity has not demonstrated it. I'm right there with you. I grew up in the same generation. But I take the word of God over what has been demonstrated in this generation. And I will stand on it. We do not want to follow Confusion 316. Isaiah 53, which is a composite. Surely he hath borne our griefs, our sicknesses, diseases, and griefs, and carried our sorrows, our sorrows, physical and mental pain. With his stripes, with his bruises, wounds, and blows received, we are healed. Which means we are physically mended, repaired, sewn up, and made whole. Do you believe it? Do you believe it, and are you willing to take it? The banquet room in the back, the banquet in the back room. This is the illustration I used in Reckoning with Truth. I, I, you're sitting up here. And I'm telling you this. And you're immediately having to grapple with the fact that, well, I prayed for this person. They weren't healed. I did this and this didn't happen. Believe me, I've been there. I know, in fact, I still am there. It's not that I have arrived in this area, which is why I don't want to be preaching about it right now. Because you could say, signs and wonders must follow, Eric. Okay, we're going to bring in the sick and the dying and the lame up to you right after this service. And if we don't see it, we're throwing this out. Please, do not throw out this message based on the fact that Eric is an incomplete work in this area. You hold on to it because the word of God is complete and his promises are sure and unchanging and he does not lie. That's what we hold on to. The church of Jesus Christ cannot stand the test of this message right now. It is my desire that one day we will rise up and I pray in this generation and I pray it's only a week from now that we rise up in this generation and when the world comes at us and says, but what about this? We show them the dead man that just rose to life. And we say, there's your answer. A banquet in the back room. You're, you're up here. And I, I say, you know what? I made a banquet for you. It's full of all sorts of goodies. Every food that you love and like and desire, it's back there. 
But you can't see it. The door's closed to it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. You're sitting up here. You've never even been close to it. But I tell you a fact. I made it for you. I personally did. I'm telling you something that I experienced. I made it for you. 20 minutes later, I come back and you're still sitting here. And I said, why didn't you get up? Did you not believe what I said? Well, I can't smell it. I can't see it. And I can't taste it. If I could, if I could smell it, if I could see it, if I could taste it, I'd get up. But I don't want to risk disillusionment. So I don't want to get up and go after something that I can't verify before I get up. Blessed is he who believes and yet is not seen. Blessed is he who believes and yet is not smelled. There is a banquet and God has promised it. But reckoning means you do not wait for the buffet table to come to you. You rise up, take God at his word, and start moving. What happens? As you get closer, you know what happens? That smell wafts beneath your nose. And as you continue forward, you still have only smelled it, but that smell, this is real. This is real, I smelled it. And everyone around you is going, I still don't smell anything. It's here, you have to get closer. You have to start moving towards it. And then guess what? I open up the door and I see it. It's real. I still haven't even tasted it yet. But as you continue forward in obedience to the word of God, guess what? Pretty soon there's a big spoon in your hand and it's entering your mouth and you are experiencing it in full capacity. Following his example, 1 Peter 2, for even hereunto were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We should follow in his steps. What did Jesus demonstrate? sort of funny. Here I'm talking about healing. And Jesus was broken and bruised. He died. He's the resurrection and the life. This doesn't sound like a message that meshes together here. How can you have the very messengers of such a concept be broken and bruised? It says he carried our sicknesses. What's he doing with them? Jesus shouldn't have any of that. He's God. We follow in his steps in demonstrating three things. The love of God, the suffering of God, and the power of God. John 5, but I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is doing works. What's known in the Greek is ergon. He is demonstrating that there is a very reality of heaven. He is demonstrating that the Father has sent him. You know that it's very important that we know that Jesus was sent to the Father? And so what he is doing when he's healing is he's demonstrating works. He is showing that he is sent to the Father. Listen to this in John 14. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Okay, what do you do with that one? Well, it's just to the apostles. What do you do with Mark 16 then? Can we take that? Or is that just something that falls to the ground in our generation? We're like, yay, apostles. I'm glad you guys had so much. We're left in the dark. We're left impotent. We have no answer for our generation. They don't know that there's a Father in heaven. They don't know that we're sent to the Father. But I'm so glad that 2,000 years ago they did. What good is it? For us, practically, if we can't demonstrate that we are sent to the Father, that our message is validated by heaven itself. Because it says, 
that you shall do the works also, right? Look at this next line. And greater works than these shall, I think it's, shall he do, those that believeth. Because I go unto my Father. The secret is here. Jesus has gone unto the Father. And when Jesus has gone unto the Father, we demonstrate that fact. Listen to this line. Note, our works bear witness of the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Where is our King? He is at the throne of authority on high. And we demonstrate that fact in the way we live on this earth. And there is nothing that doesn't come under our feet, including the effects of sin in the physical body. Demonstrating the suffering of God. So we talked about demonstrating the love of God, the suffering of God, and the power of God. In 1 Peter, it says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. What steps? That you should suffer. What kind of message is this? I thought we were supposed to be whole and healthy. I thought we were supposed to be healed of all our diseases. You are made whole so that you can suffer. Isn't this a funny message that we get in the gospel? That you should follow in his steps, who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You want to know your commission? It's that. You follow his example. You were made strong to return people unto the bishop of our souls, unto our shepherd. You were made strong to carry their burdens, to be weighed down by their weaknesses. You carry them. They can't pick it up. It's too heavy for them. They're weak and feeble. So you stroll in with the power of God and lift it. You suffer for them. That is the great secret of Christianity. We are set free and made whole so that we can suffer well. Note, Christianity is exchanging the suffering of sin for the suffering of obedience. We don't suffer because of sin. Many of us in here know what that's like. It's miserable. We are enslaved to our addictions. We are enslaved to the consequences of our idiocy. We can't get out. We're stuck in this horrible cycle. Well, guess what? Jesus is done. He has set you free. He has set you free from the suffering of sin for the suffering of obedience. And now you say, Jesus, I belong to you. You call me. You do what you want with me. Break my bread and pour out my wine. You do what you want. My body and blood are yours. And he says, I need you. I have men and women that are dying, and I need you to spill yourself for them. Will you go? I will. And guess what? Our bodies will be beaten down. As it talks about Paul's body, it was literally wasting away. Well, isn't Paul the one that healed everyone? What's going on here? Jesus' body was literally torn, turned into a pulp. How could that happen? Didn't Jesus heal? Isn't God the revelation of the fact that he heals? He heals and makes us strong so that we can be spent to see the lost return. Jesus was without sin, and yet his obedience to the Father led him to endure tremendous physical suffering. Paul was set free from the power and control of sin, and yet his obedience to Jesus Christ led him to likewise endure tremendous physical suffering. Peter was delivered from every bondage of sin, and yet his obedience to the Spirit of God led him to endure horrible physical abuse and even an upside-down crucifixion. 
They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. These two messages, these two seemingly contrary things are in perfect harmony with one another. We stand for the full merit of the atonement of Jesus Christ, but not so that we can live on some island being fed grapes and being fanned in our comfort. We have a job to do. And that job is to reveal the power of Jesus Christ over the effects of sin. This world will not be under the control of Satan any longer. Why? Because we have a king that is more powerful and greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Let's go to work! Let's demonstrate on this earth that Jesus rules, not the enemy. Sin has been canceled. Who took the the fall? Jesus did. He bore it. So let's prove it. No, we are delivered from the effects of sin in order that we may be physically spent in rescuing others from the effects of sin. Demonstrating the power of God. So we have three different dimensions. We demonstrate the love of God, the suffering of God. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that God suffers? What a strange thing. He's God. God suffers. God suffered, and he continues to suffer. And we share in that suffering. It's an incredible thought. Demonstrating the power of God. In Acts 4, 21 through 31, there is a need that we have in this generation. I don't know if you've come to the place where you can acknowledge this. What sets us apart from the world? What causes people to believe the message that we speak? Do we just need to reason them through to it, or can there be a demonstration of power? You know, throughout all of Christian history, what has caused people to say, that's an authentic message? Signs and wonders follow. Now, that bothers me, by the way. I'm just being honest. That's what did it. It authenticated the messenger. It authenticated it. It's not just another opinion. It's power demonstrated. We are here to demonstrate the love of God, the suffering of God, and the power of God. If we have no power, all we have is a religious form. A religious form will do nothing to convert the lost. They must see that there is power in the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. If you want to argue that, deal with Acts 4. So when they had further threatened them, speaking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the uh, rulers, they let them go, Peter and John, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. They had healed the lame man at the gate beautiful. So they, they beat them, and they, they didn't know what else to do. For the man was above 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, speaking of Peter and John, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, speaking of the people, the congregation of believers, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And there's this little clip I took out. It's very worth reading, but uh, it goes along with the top part. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak the word, thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This isn't the time when they were shaken and they spoke in tongues. 
They literally come before God and they say, God, we need power. We need boldness to preach the word of God. But demonstrate yourself by stretching forth your hand to heal. They knew they needed the demonstration to follow them. They needed to silence the voice of all the accusers, all the doubters, any questions. Our God is in control. Submit. Bend your knee now before it is too late. No mighty works in Nazareth. Listen to this scripture. And there, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the heal, why is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? What a statement. Speaking of Israel, is there no balm there? Did not God leave a balm for his people? Is there not a physician that has been given to the people of Israel? Why are you still sick? Weren't you given something? So here's the great question of the age that I've had to face. And you get to share it with me. If God intends to heal, and I believe he wants to heal, why is it that it seems like we have a tin ceiling above us? Why is it that he doesn't just move upon his church and do this stuff? Why is there an impediment? Why is there a hindrance? In Mark 6, it says, And he went out from thence, speaking of Jesus, and came into his own country. Okay, so he's in Nazareth. He's in his own hometown. And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Listen to what it says. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. His hometown, the place out of any place that he should be most recognized, he should be most understood. Is this ringing a bell? Where on earth should Jesus be known but in America? We have the word of God everywhere. Is there any place? Don't we have a balm in Gilead? Don't we have a physician? Read the word. He could there do no mighty work. Why? Because of unbelief. If you don't believe your God, he can do no mighty work there. It's that simple. This is an issue of unbelief. We have been trained. We have been groomed as Christians in our age to throw out and to separate this. And as a result, our God can do no mighty work. And yet he has left a balm in Gilead. We have a physician in our midst. But if we don't turn to him, and if we turn to Joe, the physician down the street instead, if we turn to our herbal diet, instead of turning to Jesus Christ as our sufficiency, as the one who desires to make us whole, is there any sick among us? God prescribes a response. What should we do about it? We need to come into alignment with Scripture. And we need to welcome the physician into Nazareth again. We need to allow him to come in and not be offended by him. And I want you to know, I have struggled with being offended by this concept. This very message I'm giving you, I have no idea how I would have heard it four years ago. But all I can say is, 
I understand. I understand what we've been groomed with. We're the good conservative Christians. We're the ones that uphold the word of God. Are we? Are we upholding the word of God in this case? That's the question. We say we are. We say we want to fight for truth. But what if that truth offends us? What if that truth presses us to consider other things and to say maybe we've been falling short? I say we're rebuffed and rebuked by the word of God and corrected so that once again we can recognize the balm in Gilead and the physician that is in our midst. What about the abuses? Because there's plenty of them. I don't hang around at healing conventions. I don't study them. I'm not attracted to them. So what do we do about the charades and the circus acts? Here's what I'd also like to say. Just because someone talks about healing doesn't mean they're wrong either. It doesn't mean they're off base. So to just throw a blanket over anyone that talks about healing and just make it sound like it's some extreme abusive thing and there's no one speaking sane on the issue is false. However, we have circus acts out there. What do we do about these abuses? Let's take this arena of truth back and not by listless confusion continue to allow the enemy to mock the word of God and diminish the intent of the cross. If Christ purchased something, then how dare we let it fall unused and unappreciated to the ground? You notice I didn't talk about them. I don't care about them. I care about Jesus Christ being high and lifted up. We live it here. I don't care if we have public demonstrations. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in putting on a show here. I'm interested in Jesus Christ getting his due. And if that means we all stand up and begin to walk towards the banquet in the back of the room, even though we don't know quite what it's going to look like and we don't know exactly what we're going to find when we get there, our God is Jehovah Rapha. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's his nature. And all who come to him, as is revealed in the New Testament, he makes whole. Without exception. There was not one exception amongst Jesus' time and amongst the apostles' time. Not one. If God was saying, some of you and not all of you, he can make that clear in and through his word. In other words, we have an issue that we must wrestle with. I don't want to give you all the answers. So I don't know them all. All I know is what the word of God says. And I say, let's let it speak forcefully in our life. Let's lift Jesus high. And let's allow our Jehovah Rapha to be Jehovah Rapha. All right? Precious Jesus. You are sufficient for us in every way. You are El Shaddai. And as our El Shaddai, our sufficient one, you know everything we need. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would prove triumphant and you would demonstrate through your church the love of God, the sufferings of God, and the power of God once again on planet Earth. Please, Lord Jesus, may we not allow truth to remain on the ground, but may we lift it high and demonstrate that there is a balm in Gilead and that there is a physician in our midst. Lord Jesus, we need power, and we need a power beyond what we have now as a church, and only you can give it. So precious Lord Jesus, we ask for it now. Amen. 
hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.